Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of The Nuclear View, a podcast podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies. Of course, I am Adam Lowther, and today we have a very special guest, guest with us. We have Curtis McGiffin, who is always special. We have Jim Petrosky, who is special in another way. And then, of course, today we have... Major General Retired Don Alston, a senior fellow of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, who is going to talk about our topic today, which is arms control. We've had a couple of uh, the State Department here in the last couple of days has issued a public statement condemning the Russians for not uh, following through in their obligations in the New START Treaty. And then, of course, uh, right before that, uh, the Russian foreign ministry said that there may be no more arms control with the United States. And if you recall, New START is our sole remaining arms control agreement with the Russian Federation. So we will be discussing that topic and arms control in general today. So with that, I want to ask you, General Alston, you were the Air Force's first A-10, and that just happened to coincide with the negotiation and ratification of New START. And so you were there, you played a role in it. What are your thoughts on the current status of New START, the Russian failure to comply? You know, where where might we go? And, you know, is is arms control still a viable option? Well, Adam, thanks. It's a pleasure for me to join you today on The Nuclear View. And uh, I appreciate the work that the uh, that NIDS is, is doing, and this is an important part of that. Um, my role on the air staff, I, I was not only the guy that stood up A-10, nuclear deterrence and strategic integration, but I was also the Air Force point guy for the New START Treaty and the nuclear posture, the 2010 nuclear posture review. So, and it seemed like the way we were doing that production, you know, it's all the same guys sitting around occasionally different tables, but we were all representing our institutions uh, in the Pentagon. And, and so we got familiar with each other um, and we got to know each other in the course of the it was about eight or nine months of probably meetings. And then then the product seemed to disappear for a couple of months and were being worked by just a few key players. But I was there from the beginning and it was, uh, it was a fascinating place and an interesting seat to, to be in during that time. You know, this first article that you referenced where we're calling out Russia for not complying or not meeting, as you said, their obligations under the treaty you know, this, it occurs to me that, uh, you know, I can't quote President Reagan with uh, great clarity, but it's not hard to paraphrase. Uh, he's talked about entering an agreement and in Russian and then in English, he said, trust but verify. Uh, 
So apparently the Russians uh, right now are showing indications, but uh, do they really think that we can have a treaty that is trust but don't verify? You know, because that that's essentially the consequence of their uh, failing to welcome inspection teams to go and do fulfill their obligations under the treaty. And, you know, the United States is not going to be able to, uh, you know, continue to sustain uh, this, the vital elements of this treaty if verification um, isn't possible. And I think that we would say verification is not possible if you don't get boots on the ground and you don't get to go see it with your own eyes and, we have very experienced people that are on these teams. They have very experienced people when they come over to see us. Uh, we didn't have a problem with this when uh, the Russians were uh, invaded Crimea. Uh, we continue to function. We continue to function in 2008 and uh, when they went to uh, South Ossetia. Um, I don't know that their uh, trip into Syria counts, but there's been several times where there's been pretty um, sharp conflict going on and this need to, and our commitment, our mutual commitment to support our tree obligations was uninterrupted. And so we've always found a way through. Now, I appreciate that the stakes are higher for what's happening in Ukraine right now with the expansion and the most current invasion from a year ago by Russia. And and they continue to talk too casually about the employment of nuclear weapons as they threaten the United States and and many of our allies. Um, so I, I appreciate it's not exactly equivalent to these other times. But still, I think that our common performance, our mutual performance during those other times of, of stress or challenge in the relationship, we found a way to continue to preserve the elevation of arms control and this specific treaty for us to uh, continue to do what needs to be done uh, to fulfill our verification responsibility. So you can't have an effective treaty without verification. I, I'm concerned that for all of the um, modification programs that are underway and the new development programs that are underway, that uh, up until um, maybe up until, uh, you know, maybe a year ago, I don't think the United States Senate would have continue to sustain those modernization programs if administrations were not showing some indications that arms control was still important to uh, each successive uh, administration. So, so, you know, the Senate plays such a vital role, you know, an essential role in treaties that, that on one hand, uh, they want to make sure that the United States continues to show a desire and proof that we want to continue to enter into arms control. And yet now we've got the Russians that I think are probably uh, making, you know, whatever concern I might've had before about that uh, essentially a quid pro quo, you better be doing arms control. We're not going to continue to write the checks. Well, now the Russians are, 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 are on the, on the verge of breaching. Well, uh, I guess arguably the department of state are breaching, um, the New START Treaty. So it does make you, um, it does, I think it does soften any potential uh, stance that our legislators would have where they would threaten to, uh, you know, whether or not they'd keep these programs on track. So I feel very good 
about the support we're going to, the sustained support we're going to have for our modernization programs. Uh, but that then leads us to another topic with regard to uh, the viability and the efficacy of the current New START treaty. So just some initial thoughts on that. Yeah. So I wonder, and then I'll ask you first and then see what Curtis and, and Jim think, but I, I wonder the Russians clearly know that we value arms control greatly. And President Biden has made that very clear. He wants to diminish the role of nuclear weapons and U.S. national security. And so I wonder if they're essentially in this specific instance trying to play hardball in their, you know, they're performing very, very poorly in Ukraine. They, they, you know, by all accounts, they should have won this already. And so this is sort of a grasp at a topic that we care greatly about. And they're saying sort of, well, maybe it'll work. And they're trying to get us essentially to give up our support for Ukraine in order to bring them back to the to the arms control and, you know, negotiation table and comply with the treaty. Do you see that as a possibility or do you think I'm just off in left field? Well, you know, I think it's an interesting argument you make, but really we're, I think we're so beyond that. I mean, that is, uh, I, I think we're already thinking about how unconstrained Russia's been in their weapon system development. We already, the magic capabilities that Putin announced in March of, I think, 2018, that would all be beyond the constraints of the New START Treaty. And then the development that's occurred since then, and I don't know where they are with a variety of these capabilities, but none of them would be captured in the current framework. So, you know, United States uh, institutions that are looking at the inadequacies of the New START Treaty are already already beyond that. So, you know, this treaty I- itself is arguably no longer, it's, it's more effective in pro forma than it is in fact, because I, I just believe that if, if they have developed, and even if they're fielding any of these capabilities that are clearly beyond the uh, constraints of the New START Treaty, that just, uh, you know, we're already, um, you know, trying to preserve this as a vestige of traditional arms control, when in fact there's a mismatch between the reality on the ground and even the pursuit that we have of hypersonics, for example, and <coughs> sorry, and other capabilities. So, so I, I think that it would. Uh, I don't think there's a strong argument that someone could make. Uh, I don't think it's defensible that they would just be trying to, uh, you know, show that, that they've got. A, I don't see this as a bargaining chip. I guess is what I'm saying because I think there's already a growing mismatch on the ground between what the free treaty preserves and what the capabilities are that the Russians are, are uh, after right now. Okay, thanks. Jim, you are nodding your head vigorously. Why don't we turn to you next? Well, uh, thank you, Adam. And again, Don, thank you so much for joining us. You've added so much to what we're doing. So, yeah, so before we started this, Adam said, hey, Jim Petrosky, you know, you're the technical guy. So let's talk about the technical aspects of this. And look, we've been doing inspections for a long time. We understand the process and everything else. And I I don't think this has anything to do with tech, technology at this point, except for maybe one piece I'll bring at the end. But I'm because I'm technology oriented, I walk into the tree viewing the treaty stuff. 
with a, a sort of a clean slate and I look at it and my first question is, what the heck are the treaties for? What are we gaining by the treaties? And this is, a, I'd, I'd be interested in what others say. I'm not, I'm, I'm saying this in somewhat of a, a joking manner, but what, what's in it for us? And the second piece of the treaty, so so what is it supposed to do? But then the second piece is, is if we're, as Adam says, we're trying to reduce the use or the, uh, uh, the, the role of nuclear weapons. Well, here, even in this article, um, there's a there's a comment that says um, the Russians are using their non-compliance as a way to gain a little more leverage. So they that we will say, oh, this war is threatening arms control, etc. Well, there you go. Putin's using his nuclear weapons. It's actually amplifying the use of nuclear weapons in this whole negotiation process. And Putin's got the you know started hand on this, and we've got to look at a way of reducing that through our deterrent. So I'll turn it over because I know Curtis is going to jump in with his whack-a-mole theory, but go ahead. Over to me. <laughs> you got it, Over Curtis. Over to you, right. Curtis. Thanks so much, uh, Adam. Jim, good to see you. Uh, Don, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to have a senior fellow here with us uh, uh, participating, especially one who's who's been a part of this. Well, let me preface my comments by saying a lot has changed since 2010 when this, when this New Star Treaty was ratified, right? And uh, to arbitrarily, within a month or less than a month in office, to agree to extend it uh, five years without any ask, right, any bargaining chip. Think now if, if, if President Biden had come in and said, I'm going to extend it, I want to agree to extend it for one year and let's begin negotiations. All of this would have gone and would have been done before the, uh, the eventual invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, but you know, it is what it is. And so here we are. And uh, let's talk about, you know, material violations. What what treaty has Russia not materially violated? Uh, you know, we, you know, we're we're <laughs> we're in we, we we're out of the INF treaty because of a material violation discovered in 2014 by the Obama administration and not and not adjudicated until the Trump administration in 2019, I think. Um, obviously, uh, open skies uh, as well, um, and, um, and and we've known that they, they that the, many of the other treaties have been violated uh, as well. Uh, too numerous to uh, to go into that even aren't even nuclear related. Um, the other interesting thing about this is that it that the State Department is declaring a material breach, so to speak, here now. The reality is, uh, last year in 2022. It was noted that we hadn't been doing verification since March of 2020. And in 21, the, uh, the Biden administration signed off and declared that they, were in, that they were in compliance, even though we had not inspected Russia since COVID had broken out in March of 2020. How did we do that? So the question we have to ask is, is why do we care? Um, and, and, uh, you know, we didn't seem to care for some, for some two to three years now, now all of a sudden we care. And, uh, and so, uh, just on a surface there's, and there's lots of issues of why we should care, not to mention, uh, the, the veracity. So why do we care? Let me interrupt you. Why do we care? Answer your question. I will. I will. So why do we care is (laughs) 
what have they been doing in the last two years that we've not been able to verify? All of their missile systems um, are, are purported to be limited in certain uh, numbers of warheads, yet we, their own agencies uh, all report higher potential, higher capacity. So the potential for them to have uploaded uh, warheads into all of their strategic systems uh, is, is great. Even uh, Rose Gottmuller stated in a conversation in 2019 that there's a potential, uh, should they had decide to upload almost up to a thousand warheads over uh, over the the strategic set of 1550, uh, and 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 so my guess is is that the reason why they don't want us to come and see is because they don't want us to catch what they've done, and it will take a year or more to begin to download those warheads if their intention is to to allow us to come in and see that. And then the last thing I'll say is why aren't they, why don't they care that they're not getting to see our stuff now? Cuz obviously the the verification works both ways. They are not fearful that we are cheating in any way despite their rhetoric. And so for them this is a win-win. And there's a long history of this and I'll cover all maybe some of that in my next time here. I'll stop. Yeah, and, and, and I got to, this Jim Petrosky, I got to jump in and I'm really interested in Don's answer on this, but I'm going to answer my own question too. I ask, you know, what do we get out of the treaty? And the answer that I'm seeing and Curtis seemed to validate is the treaties are good until they're used a way to bludgeon someone when you pull out of them. And because you've restricted, you know, you've done some restriction beyond that. No, I'm being, you know, very minor in this, but that's my first step that I see the way that this is being done. I'd be curious uh, to, to see what our guest uh, has to say on that and, and you know, where we head from there. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I think about this whole process from the moment we began to organize ourselves. And I think that this thing started with President Obama going to London and Mullins and Gates had uh, actually the vice chairman had written a number on a piece of paper as like uh, a target, if you will. And the North Koreans, I think, had a detonation in June, and this was July. And uh, allegedly, Mullins turned to Gates and said, uh, why would we do that? Meaning that number, like it was the wrong number. It was too low of a number. And so uh, allegedly, they uh, they went back with a different value uh, for uh, to begin this process when he and Putin, when Obama and Putin met in London, and then you know, we were all charged to continue uh, working the working the problem. So, but my my point is is that you know not to not to uh, uh, speak disparagingly of our negotiation team, uh, but we certainly had a thought that the Russians had more experience at the table than us, and I don't think we got out and negotiated necessarily once the ground rules were set, but we were out negotiated in setting the ground rules. And so the fact that we quickly rolled and decided that non-strategic weapons was a bridge too far for this endeavor because they only had less than a year to negotiate the New START Treaty before the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the first START Treaty was going to expire in December. And it did expire, of course, uh, before we got done with this particular work. So, so we got outmaneuvered to start and kept certain things off the table. And we were good with that as we, uh, as we move forward here. So 
I think that I, I do think that they're cagey. They've always been cagey. They're, I, I, I assume there's experience there. Um, I don't know if that's fair anymore, but, you know, we, we all grew up with four decades of Gromyko showing up at every, you know, every he's in every picture, uh, let alone being a a, a prominent player, uh, you know, in the Politburo or whatever. Um, I, I don't expect they have that kind of continuity, but I think they have a lot. So, um, and, and I also would hope too, I, uh, uh, Curtis, I think you made some really good points. And I, I, it, it occurs to me that I don't know what our intelligence community was instructed to do when this kind of a handicap was put upon us by uh, the pandemic. But I certainly hope that we would have uh, worked some sensor taskings in such a way as to be able to see a high volume of cheating. But, you know, if you want to cheat and you're good at it and you've been doing it for decades, I guess you can pull it off no matter how effectively we may have uh, modified our uh, collection collection efforts at the time. So I know I didn't answer your question, Jim, but uh, but those are just some of my reaction to you guys. Well, let me ask a, a follow-on question that, you know, was information that was released this week where uh, the deputy, I'm pulling up his name right now, the deputy minister, the deputy foreign minister, Sergei Ryabkov, told the, the RIA state news agency, this is quite a possible scenario, end quote, when he was asked if we had reached the end of arms control between the United States and Russia. And he of course made it, you know, well known that U S support for Ukraine was sort of the motivator for why he didn't think or why the Russian government didn't think that we would have future arms control. So as we think about future arms control, do you see, you know, a future for arms control between the United States and Russia? Do you see, because my long held position has always been that arms control is good for the weaker side. That's really who it's meant for. It's meant for the weaker side to gain enough. And for the, the stronger side says, well, we can give that up. But it really benefits the weaker side. In the INF Treaty, the United States in Europe was clearly the weaker side. Uh, if you go back and look at strategic arms control, the Russians clearly felt they were the weaker side. And so I, I wonder, is there much utility left in further arms control? So even if, let's say, Ukraine no longer exists and there's Russia and the United States and thinking about China's, you know, rapid expansion of its arms, nuclear arms. Is, is there really a future for arms control? Who's that for? Well, that's for all of you. <laughs> I well, know, Curtis, start. I know you've been scratch. You've been, you know, you, you've got an itch to scratch in this discussion of arms so, control. Here's the thing about arms control. All right. Arms control has to have two items, two things, or it's inevitably going to fail. Uh, and the first one is, Whatever the arms control treaty it is, uh, it, it, it's, the end result still has to meet the security needs of both parties. Okay, so that's rule number one. Because if you don't, you'll cheat. 
or you'll or you'll pull out of the treaty. This is, I think, why INF uh, was ultimately uh, cheated and and uh, uh, on it was it was no longer meeting the needs um, of the Russians. Uh, the second rule is is that it must be verifiable. <laughs> we know we're not meeting that need right now. Those are the two things it has to have. But I'm going to throw in a third caveat, and that is is that you can't want it more than they do. The moment you go into a treaty, a negotiation, be out of desperation or for some political agenda not to meet your national interests, you are already going to lose because they will take advantage of you. There's a history of this from SALT 1 and, and, and beyond. Uh, we go with altruistic intentions, the Russians or the Soviets, and then came in with, with ideas of how do we come out better, in a better position than when we came in. Uh, and so, so that is uh, the, the things that a treaty needs to have. Uh, my point uh, has always been, Adam, and, and, and you know, I'll continue to beat my horse here. The INF treaty succeeded because we scared the Soviets into signing an agreement. Right? Reagan built. He deployed Glickums and Pershing twos. He he held uh, he, he held the uh, uh, Moscow at risk uh, in an intolerable fashion. And so they decided it was time to negotiate. We're not in that position right now. We don't possess the fear factor that brings the Russians to the table. So what do they have to lose? They're 85% modernized. They're already. They would love to start to constrain us as we are 10 years into a 25-year modernization cycle. Uh, and so these are the challenges, I think, that until we are ready to realize this, we, we, we just cannot want it more than they do. Where that's where I think uh, the problem with uh, with uh, arms control will be uh, in the future, because both parties have to want it, and I'm not sure that can that uh, consists right now. Yeah, and, and and Curtis, I'm just going to jump on that because that was that was my point. What's in the treaty for us? What's in the treaty for them? No agreement is any good unless both parties win. You know, they got to want something out of it. And it looks like the only thing Russia wants out of the treaties presently, as as I said before, to bludgeon us with it. Well, I'd like to offer uh, just a little bit of a different thought. I think that when the treaty, the, the the overall process to be engaged and to produce an arms control treaty, I think has redeeming value. It has redeeming value because uh, uh, if it's a dependable process. The players, the, there's there's continuity. We get to know each other to a certain extent with a little bit more depth, because if you negotiate well, you at least expose what people don't want to do, uh, let alone what you want to do. So I think you may be able to feel out each other's intentions as long as those channels are open. I think when you conclude a treaty, I think there is a measure of stability that is present that wouldn't be there if you didn't have the treaty. And as the oldest adults in the arm in the uh, nuclear weapons uh, business, the United States is trying to model behavior for the prolif proliferators and the new acquirers of nuclear weapons. Um, and there needs to be a consistent message of restraint when it comes to these things. Now, how do you get China to the table? How do you, you know, and there, there are lots of tough nuts to crack. But it's more than just the moral high ground to, um, to try to force this level of engagement. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more on, 
on the lack of verification, the edge that we each try to get, or that we're the good Boy Scouts and they're not. So I appreciate all of that. All of that is you're speaking truth. Uh, but I do believe that the framework does have redeeming value. And I do that stability, at least in some form, is a product. Yeah, that's a fair that's a fair point. That's, um, you know, and the Russians have been good at cheating, biological, chemical, you know, weapons, treaties, conventions. And then, you know, they they appear to be treating on, you know, the test ban treaty and some others. But, you know, maybe even with that level of cheating, they're still constrained. And so therefore we're still, like you said, sort of modeling behavior, shaping their behavior to do things that they otherwise would prefer not to do. So I, I see your point there, Curtis, you were going to add something. Yeah. If I could just add and, and maybe ask thoughts on this, is there stability when we willfully leave out an entire class of capability like non-strategic nuclear weapons? Is there a stability when we don't go and discuss novel weapons that are used with high technology um, that uh, somehow um, are used to, to circumvent the spirit of the, of the uh, treaty? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And the only, you know, as, as you were asking that question, my thought was, well, if they're not part of the treaty, that means we can, we can, you know, develop our own capabilities and match, you know, the Russians or the Chinese. So, you know, if, if I try to channel my inner Don Alston, then my, you know, my, my take on that is, is that, you know, he brought up a good point because I'm somewhat skeptical of arms control and its utility. But he, you know, as Don said, you know, we sort of get to know each other. We get to know each other's interests. We get to know each other's bounds and limits. And there's oh, yeah. there's utility in that, you know, because part of the, you know, I was talking to somebody else earlier today. And my argument was that one of the two biggest risks we faced during the Cold War was our inaccurate perceptions of the Russians and the Russians' inaccurate perceptions of us. And this was exemplified in the 1980s during Reagan's efforts to engage in various arms control deals. And if you read, you know, there's several good books about this topic that, you know, use the, you know, the Reagan Library papers and archives and Russian archives. And they, the Russians clearly thought we wanted to destroy Russia. They had a clear misperception about our um, desire to destroy the Soviet state. And then we had some pretty clear misperceptions about their aggressiveness, their desire to expand, you know, Soviet socialism. And so therefore we talked past each other because we, we didn't understand each other. And so perhaps arms control provides some ability to understand each other better and there and maybe that's a sufficient you know utility in in having arms control writ large now i want to give each of you guys curtis and jim we lost uh oh don's coming back but i want to give everybody one last opportunity because we are about out of time 
And so I want to give everybody a chance to, to offer their final thoughts. Let me, yeah, I'll go ahead and I'll let Curtis have the last word today and unless Don can get back in here, but you know, you know, I agree 100% that the trees provide us a framework for which we can interact and discuss among our adversaries uh, and, and get to know where their pivot points are and where their negotiation points are. Those are all, those are all valuable, but it's only done in the spirit of cooperation and openness and fairness. And I think this is the problem we're running into right now without having added, had the ability to put boots on the ground and be able to verify and understand exactly what was there. I think only at that point would we be able to say that we were doing exactly that. Um, so that would be my, you know, my final point on that. Curtis. Okay. Um, I would argue that how do you negotiate with an entity that is willfully disregarding its previous treaties, invades the sovereignty of other countries, um, and uh, willing willfully targets civilians uh, in a conventional war? Um, uh, and so, uh, and and if I'm a Russian, I might say the same thing. <laughs> so. Uh, how do you, how do you do that? And, and what makes you think that all of us, you know, they'll do all of these other things, but they're not cheating on the new star treaty. And, uh, and so, um, I mean, even with all the verification, which in my opinion is not robust enough, it is less toothful than the previous start treaty. And, uh, and therefore, uh, you know, it's just, we really just, don't know. And I think this really comes down to the fact that we wanted this treaty more than they did. Uh, we wanted to extend it when it was expired. You know, I want to remind everybody that the New Star Treaty, uh, it took months, right? SALT Treaty took seven years to negotiate. Uh, the, the New Star Treaty, I think, took seven months, maybe, uh, to negotiate, maybe four months, I think, to negotiate. Uh, and in the 10 years, uh, the Russians didn't have to come into compliance with the treaty until the end of the seventh year, of which they did. And and up to then, they were they carried warheads, they hedged above the number uh, until then. So there was, uh, you know, and then they said they came in compliance right at uh, on the uh, April first date. So, uh, you know, and then and then it's over, right? Three years later, it's 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 over, and we had to renew it, uh, and so. Rather than taking advantage of the opportunity to renegotiate something, because times have changed, technology has changed, situations have changed, and we kind of gave up that bargaining chip by just saying, "Yeah, let's just renew it for five years, and we'll see what happens." Uh, and uh, and I think that that is uh, kind of put us at a little bit of a uh, at a little bit of a detriment here. And then the last thing I'll say is, is why aren't they nervous about us? And it's because we're doing we're doing it for them. The NPR takes slick them off the table. It kills off the B eighty three, and uh, and it, we're taking you know a lifetime to modernize and recapitalize uh, the forces that we have in a one for one swap, more or less. So I, they're not worried about us. So um, there's little motivation. That's my two cents. Thanks. With that, I want to thank Curtis McGiffin, Jim Petrosky, and Don Austin for joining us today. This has been another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, where we covered and discussed 
you know, recent developments as we do each week where we talk about what's going on in the news and what are our biggest challenges in, in the realm of the nuclear world. And of course, this week was a was a good one. You know, we, we've had Russia and the U- U.S. State Department say, hey, Russian Federation, you're out of compliance and come back into compliance. So it's been an interesting week. That's a, that's a big development. And so I want to thank Curtis and Jim and Don, and I want to thank you, all of the listeners out there, for joining us on the show. And of course, as always, I want to encourage you to think deterrence. We will see you next week.